Go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. While you do that, let me summarize where we've been in case you're just joining us in this series. We've been walking through, paragraph by paragraph, the Gospel of Mark. And we've been in it now for a few months. We'll be in it for a few more months. We're at the halfway point, approximately. Mark has 16 chapters. The first eight focus on the same question, who is Jesus? Over and over again, that's been the theme. And then in verse 29 of chapter 8, which is right near the end of chapter 8, you get the answer. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And a few weeks ago, we talked about what that means. It means that he's our true king and he's our only hope. Now, the second half of the book, the last eight chapters, wraps around what does it mean for him to be the Messiah? And more particularly, what does it mean for us to put our faith in him and to follow him? And so you start to see our journey sort of corresponding with the journey of the disciples. What is it going to mean for them to follow him? And you know where he's going. He's going first to the cross before he goes to the empty tomb. So immediately, as soon as Peter declares, you're the Messiah, Jesus says, you're right. Now here's what it's going to mean. It's going to mean that you're going to have to follow me to death. I'm dying and you're going with me, but then there'll be a resurrection on the other side. And so what it means to follow Christ, Jesus is saying immediately is, it's hard, it's not easy, but it's worth the exchange. And so we get this wonderful verse that we unpacked uh, a little while ago where Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will find it. It's this great exchange. And then what Jesus does immediately after that is he takes three of his disciples, the ones that he was relationally closest to, he takes them up on top of a mountain and he's transformed, he's transfigured. So if you're here last week, Michael was here, did a great job unpacking that passage. And it's literally the high point in the disciples' journey with Christ. So that's true literally and that's true sort of metaphorically. It's as good as it gets. From here on out in the book, you're going to see a sort of a slow descent down into the hardships and the struggle of what it means to follow a man that's going to be plotted against and ultimately killed and his disciples will be scattered. So we're going to be following with them on that journey and following our own journey as we consider what does it mean to really go to the cross. Now, coming down from the mountain, there's something you need to know. While the three were on the mountain, the nine remaining disciples were down in the valley and they're struggling. Like things are not going well for them and you're going to see what circumstance they're in in just a minute. And I think we're all going to identify anybody not on the mountaintop this morning. (laughs) I got one hand over there, right? We, We could all, most of us in the room could all raise our hand. This passage this morning is for anybody not on the mountaintop. Now, if you're mountain, if you're on the mountaintop, that's great. Just hang in there because you're coming down eventually. Right. This passage this morning is for all of us that are struggling. So there are circumstances in your life that's too big for you. There are things that are beyond your means, and some of you find yourself there today. This passage is for you. For others of you, you're struggling with faith in general. There's a part of you that just struggles to believe. Believe that God is real or believe that God is good. This passage is for you this morning. In fact, I'd say it this way. Have you ever wondered, am I missing something? Have you ever wondered, is something wrong with me? This passage is for you. You're not alone. The disciples are going to ask that same question this morning. And by the way, I'd say if you've never thought what's wrong with me, there might be something wrong with you. (laughs) Just throw that out there. Now, to the degree that you're able to own your own need this morning, your own lack, your own insufficiency, your own weakness, to the the degree you're able to own that this morning is, I think, the degree that you're going to find hope in this passage. It contains one of my very favorite verses in all of Scripture, and I've been eagerly uh, anticipating 
preaching this message to you. So we're going to pick it up in verse 14. So the background is Jesus and his three disciples are just coming down from the mountain and they're going to find out what's been going on down below in the valley. Verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, the, the other nine, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Pause right there. Anytime you see scribes or Pharisees in the rest of the text, it's always bad news. And those are the enemies of Jesus. They've already been determined he's not Messiah. He's actually of Satan. You may remember that from a couple months ago. And now they're determined to kill him. So when they're on the scene, they're plotting. They're trying to trap him. uh, And eventually they will have him arrested. Verse 15. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? Now, the them there points to the other disciples. So Jesus is saying, what, are, what have you been talking about? What have you been arguing about with my disciples while I've been away? Verse 17, one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. Now, let's pause here and unpack what's happening in this scene and see how many of these difficult things the disciples were facing that you can personally identify with. Number one, the disciples are facing their own failure. This man has come to them saying, cast out this demon. They tried, they failed. Now, don't raise your hand on this one, but anybody dealing with your own failure right now? I had a situation just last weekend. Jody was away at that women's retreat that Paige was talking about. So I had the kids on my own. And Saturday morning, I was determined it was going to be a fantastic father-daughter morning. And I'll tell you, as the morning went on, like things weren't going right. My patience was wearing a little more thin. I thought, we're going to go on a bike ride. We went on this beautiful bike ride. The weather was gorgeous that day. And all the things were going wrong. I was having to push them and they were arguing and like they just weren't wanting to go there. I'm thirsty. I didn't bring a water and all these things. And I finally, (laughs) I had what I, I... I call one of those um, parenting belly flops. It's ugly. You make a splash. Everybody gets wet. And this is what happened. I just burst out and I said, can't we even have a bike ride? (laughs) And and my sweet little daughters, you know, they just looked at me with those big eyes like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And I had to come back and apologize later. And I'm like, here I wanted to have this great experience with my daughters. I wanted to help them. I wanted to serve them. And I did the belly flop. And this is what's happening to the disciples, right? They're trying to do some good here, and they're in the middle of their own failure. That's number one. A lot of us can identify with that in the room. Their own failure. The second thing they're facing is relational conflict. Did you catch that? You know, some, some people were arguing with them. We all have relational conflict. Oftentimes, it's the people that we care most about. That's why it bothers us. So some of you are in relational conflict in this season of your life with your spouse, with a child, with a, an extended family member, maybe with a friend or a coworker. You cannot go through life and avoid relational conflict. We're all sinners. That is not a good formula for peace, right? So we can identify with failure. We can identify with relational conflict. How about disappointed people? In other words, people that are disappointed in us because we're not delivering, we're not giving them what they want. Here you have this father that came to the disciples. Heal my son. They can't do it. You, you want to you feel like the pressure that they were feeling? Like all of us have experiences in our lives where like, I, I just, I, I wish I could help them, but I can't. I can't give them what they wanted. They want me to do this for them. They want me to show them that and I can't. I don't have it in me to give it to them or I failed or I'm not enough or I don't want to help. It creates 
Unmet expectations, disappointed people. Failure, relational conflict, disappointed people. How about people who want you to fail? Those scribes, man, I, I, I know they were just licking their chops at this situation. Here the disciples of the miracle worker Jesus can't cast out a simple demon. Maybe they're following the wrong guy, right? So the scribes are there. They want them to fail. We all can identify with that. You know, maybe it's not a direct enemy of yours, but people in your life that you're like, I think they probably kind of chuckle when I'm struggling. I think they kind of smile when I'm having a hard time. I don't think they want me to win because I'm a follower of Jesus or whatever, or, or they don't like what I'm about. We have people in our lives that we think maybe want us to fail. And then the last thing is, don't miss this one, in the center of all this commotion, there's literal evil. So there's a circle around this poor boy. Inside the boy is a demon. So you've got the disciples' failure, you've got relational conflict, you've got unmet expectations, disappointment, you've got enemies, people that want them to fail, and in the middle of it all, you've got evil, actual evil, right? This is the situation that they're in. Now you start seeing this and you're like, okay, okay, I can identify. There's a situation that's beyond my means, right? Uh, These guys are in over their head. And so that's the setup of what's happening here. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to skip over the part where Jesus heals the boy. Now, spoiler alert, he's going to be okay. <laughs> and I want to show you that this text actually is written in a sandwich structure, which we've talked about before. Mark loves to do that with these different parts of the narrative. So what I mean by sandwich is Mark introduces a theme. In this case, it's the inability of the disciples, right? The, the failure of the disciples. He introduces that theme. Then he's going to come back to that same theme at the end. And in the middle, there's a lesson. In the middle is the meat of the sandwich, and there's a lesson. I want to skip over the meat. We'll come back to it. And I want to skip down to the very end when we come back to this theme of the disciples' failure. They're going to ask Jesus, why did we fail? What's wrong with us? Let's check it out, verse 28. When he came into the house, now this is after all the, all the commotion, the demon's already been cast out. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. So here's the situation. The commotions died down. You know, they huddle up with Jesus privately to do an after-action review. Those of you with a military background, right, you know what I'm talking about there. And it's, you know, what went well? Well, what went well was you, Jesus. You know, you, you came and saved the day. What, what didn't go well? What didn't go well was us, Jesus. What's wrong with us? We tried and we failed. Why did we fail? Why didn't it work this time? Remember, we cast out other demons earlier when you sent us out on that missionary journey. Why didn't it work this time? His answer is interesting. This kind only comes out through prayer. Now, there's a couple you know, interesting um, scholarly debates around what does it mean, this kind? Well, there, there may be different levels of strength of the demonic powers, of the demonic force, and this particular one was a strong one. I, I think it's as simple as this. If you break it down, they didn't pray. I think we can, we can read that clearly. Like, like you didn't pray. Like, how can you cast out a demon, particularly a strong demon like this, without asking for help? Isn't that what prayer is? It's just an expression of, there's something beyond me I can't handle. I'm going to ask for help. Now, there's a lot of other kinds of prayer, but in its essence, prayer is talking to God particularly talking to God about things that are beyond our own control. So do you really realize this, that Jesus is saying, you know, you know guys, 
you were going it alone. You were trying to cast out this demon without talking to your Father in heaven. And of course, he, Jesus, is God himself, and he's saying, listen, although I was physically absent, if you would have prayed, my power could have flowed through you, and you could have cast out the demon. The lesson here, I think application for them and us is a really important one. Your resources are not enough for the tasks God has called you to do. Do you know that? You all know it, but we all forget it. So let's talk about parenting. <laughs> I was reminded of that last weekend. Uh, my resources, my level of patience, my, my, my skill as a dad, even, even my own human love for my daughters, my own resources are not enough to do the task that God has called me to do. How about in your job? How about in your marriage? How about in, in, in extended family relationships? How about in your financial world? How about in your own health? Your resources alone Without communication with your Father, your resources alone are not enough to do the things that God has called you to do. That's a powerful lesson. In fact, it's such a big deal. It's the theme of the whole passage, the the top piece of bread and the bottom piece of bread. I want to dig into it a little bit more and and, and do that. I want to give you this analogy. Um, Tell you what, before I hit the analogy, let me start here. Can we all agree that human beings are incredible creations? Like you think about the things that, that through you know, the, the intelligence that God has given, like all the technology to get to the place where you know, we've got, I don't have it in my pocket, but, but these little amazing devices that woke us up this morning on their own. Right? You know, I, I told Eric Hoffman I only set one, one alarm because I just had confidence in my phone. Right? He was just like, you shouldn't do that. Well, it worked. Here's the bottom line. I'm kind of going on a tangent. Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Ephesians 2, we are God's workmanship. Maybe better translated, we are God's masterpiece. The pinnacle of his creation. We're wonderful, wonderful creatures. However, you, know, you felt the however coming, right? However, we are not designed to operate independently from our creator. And so, you know, all, all of us want to be autonomous. All of us want independence. All of us want to be free. But we forget that we actually weren't designed to unplug from the power source and go it alone. So I had a really clear example. Here's the analogy. A really clear example that happened yesterday. We, we've got two fish tanks in our house. And one's just a little one with a beta. And the other one's like a 10-gallon where we have five fish in the 10-gallon. I was cleaning out the 10-gallon because, you know, that's what I have to do because the daughters aren't doing it, right? So I, I take the fish out and I put them in this big, like it's like a popcorn bowl. It's really shallow. Okay, so y'all see, maybe see where this is going. I put them in this real big shallow bowl and then I'm starting cleaning out the tank and I'm emptying the water and I'm scrubbing, I'm doing all these things. And like, by the way, if you're like serious fish people, you know that you're never supposed to do what I'm doing, but I did it anyway. Like killing all the good bacteria and all these things. Well, anyway, so I'm cleaning out this tank and, and, and my daughter comes over, the middle daughter, Lisa, and she's like, where's mommy's fish? I'm like, well, what do you mean? It's over there. <laughs> and so I run over there and I start counting the fish. I'm like, one, two, three, four. Where's the fifth fish? And like, I literally, I'm like, oh man, I flushed it down the drain or like something happened. I'm like, I'm feeling really guilty. And of course, my girl's like little tears starting to well up. Like, where's the fish? All of a sudden, Elisa turns around. She starts to like walk in the other room and she sees the fish on the floor. It had leaped out of the water and landed on the floor. Now, pandemonium breaks out in my house. 
because Elisa sees a fish on the ground, which she was not expecting, and she lets out a blood-curdling scream. So she goes, ah! And then her little sister goes, ah! And then the oldest girl starts running. Like, she runs away, like, up the stairs. Like, Ansley's up the stairs, like, avoiding the situation. And Jody and I are standing there in the kitchen, like, right around this, and we're like, what happened? Is there a boogeyman? I mean, is there a dead body? Well, dead body. It was just little, this little big. Now, Jody very calmly goes over there. She picks the fish up. It's not moving. But she's like, well, what the heck? I'm going to put it back. So she puts it back in the bowl. It starts swimming around. Like resurrection <laughs> happened right here. <laughs> Miracle. Miracle. Now, that's a fun story to tell. But that's not the only reason I told it. I was thinking about that this morning. I said, listen, that, this is like us. This is like us. We don't like the confines of the bowl. We're like, all right, I I get it. God's designed me in a certain way. He's designed me in this bowl. There's certain rules. There's certain laws. There's certain expectations. And, you know, he says they're for my flourishing, but I can't see how this could be for my flourishing. I keep bumping up against the edge of the bowl. I'm going to jump out. This is what sin actually is. It's like autonomous living, independence, freedom. There's no life outside the bowl. You see, you've just liberated yourself (laughs) into death. You see this analogy. Now, now living apart from dependence upon God, living outside of the water that your lungs were designed to to breathe in, right? In order order to get life. Living apart from the the bowl that God has put you in through the life-giving structure that he has created you to operate in is just like these disciples trying to cast out this demon without talking to God about it. They're just, they're autonomous. They're independent. They're going it alone. We've got power. We don't need the confines of the bowl. We don't need to be in, you know, communion with the Father or with the Savior Jesus. We can cast out this demon on our own. Jesus is saying, you don't have the resources, the sufficiency, the ability to do all that you need to do apart from asking for help. You need to stay connected to me you need to to stay dependent upon me you need to pray now if you're ever wondering hey how how am i doing in operating dependently on god as opposed to operating independently away from god just ask yourself how's your prayer life that'll always tell you it'll always tell you what are you praying about what are you not praying about how much are you praying how much are you not praying Like everything that you're not praying about, you're actually saying, God, I think I got this. I don't really need any help. Either that or you don't believe he can help you or will help you, which is where we're going to go next in the text. All right, so that's the sandwich part of the text. You don't have the ability to do all the things you need to do. Therefore, you're designed to live dependently, not independently. Now, let's get to the meat of the sandwich. We're going to pick the story back up in verse 19. So remember, this father of this poor child has just said, your disciples couldn't do it. What gives? I added that. Verse 19, And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Now, I won't say a lot about that verse, but I will say that there's something emotional that comes out of Jesus, and it's the unbelief that creates this sense of angst in him. He's just like, if you could only see, if you, if you would just believe, you know, how, how long am I going to be in this situation where I'm, I'm surrounded with this unbelief? And then he gets on to verse 20. They brought the boy to him, 
when he saw him, meaning when, when the boy, or probably when the spirit saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Now let's just pause there for a minute. What disease does this sound like? Epilepsy. Right, so these, this boy's having epileptic seizures. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, well, there's no demon. You know, this is just a, we know now this is a, a, a disease. And, you know, we, we still have this disease today. And here's what I'd, what I'd say but before you go too far down that path of no demon. I'd say this. We see in Mark's gospel three kinds of situations that I want to talk about. One is Jesus heals diseases where there's no demon mentioned. We've seen that already multiple times. Number two. Jesus casts out demons sometimes where there's no disease mentioned. We've seen that a lot already too. The third category is when there is a demon and a disease and they're somehow connected together. Now, don't build a whole theology on this. It doesn't mean that every time there's a seizure, there's a demon in there. But I think what this is saying is, at least under some circumstances, Satan actually can influence physical diseases. And in this particular case, we're told there's both going on. There's a demon present, and there's these, these seizures that, that, that the demon is somehow causing. So let's keep going in the text. And Jesus asked the Father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now, I want to submit to you that this man does exactly what the disciples earlier failed to do. He asks Jesus for help. Now, he didn't know it. This man, but he actually was praying. Now, he didn't know he was praying because he didn't know he was talking to God. He didn't know it yet. So he has this prayer. And I want to say it's a fantastic prayer. It's at, right here at the last phrase of, of verse 22. Take pity on us and help us. Now, think about this man's situation. Since childhood, his son has had this demon in him. Can you imagine how many different things the dad's tried to do and how many different people he's gone to and how many different ways he's tried to help his son? You know, any, anybody that has a child with physical struggles, emotional struggles, spiritual struggles, it, 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 it eats you, right? You do anything you can to get help for your child. This is the situation that this dad is in. He's way over his head. He's a, apart from his own means, you see the parallelism going on with the situation of the disciples? They're, at, they're, at, they're above their means, like they're, the, the water's over their head, and they don't ask for help, they don't pray. This man, he's a, it's beyond him. He asks for help. Take pity on us, help us. That is a great prayer. I challenge you to find anywhere in Scripture where that prayer, or one like it, is not answered. God responds to humility, take pity and he responds to a cry for help. Take pity on us. Help us. Imagine if the disciples, when they tried to cast out the demon, they couldn't do it, they would have prayed this prayer. God, take pity on us. We don't know what we're doing. Help us. The power of God would have flown right through them. That's what Jesus is saying. So you got to pray. you got to ask for help. You can't do it alone. So here this is being lived out now in a positive way by this 
man, now there's this fantastic prayer, take pity, help us, wonderful prayer. There's just one problem. The problem is the phrase that comes right before it in verse 22. So the phrase before the prayer is, if you can do anything. Now Jesus is about to do something marvelous. He's about to take that phrase, if you can do anything, and he's about to use it as a mirror to hold up to this man's soul. Jesus is going to do like some crazy jujitsu move where he's going to turn it around on this man because what Jesus has in mind is not just the healing of the boy. He has in mind the healing of the boy's father. So watch what he does with this doubt. Watch what he does with this lack of faith, this if. Verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can. So he's reflecting that back. He's just repeating what the man just said. All things are possible to him who believes. Did you see that move? I want you to see how beautiful this is. Y'all, Jesus could have healed the son without interacting with the dad at all. He he, he knew exactly where this man's faith was, where it started, where it stopped. He could have just said, fine, I'm just going to heal him. Just boom. Instead, he takes the time to have this soul-searching conversation with this man where he's like, all right, what is true? What do you actually believe? Why have you come to me? Do you think I can do this? Do you think I can't do this? If, how big is your if? I'm going to... Search your soul and invite you to proclaim and declare, do you believe or do you not believe? Now, in that moment, the ball is in the man's court. He's asked Jesus, have mercy, help. Jesus reflects back. It's like a tennis match. He's like, ball's in your court. If... Like, why have you come to me? And by the way, all of us that are struggling with something hard in our lives, all of us, this is the moment in time that we find ourselves in. You're praying for something, and I believe God will hold the mirror back at you and say, why, why, why are you coming to me? What do you believe is true about me that makes you ask for this? Do you think I'm strong enough? Do you think I'm good enough? Do you think I'm real? How big is your if? Now, when you hear that, if you're like me, get a little nervous. Because we all have if. We all have doubt. All of us have come into this room with some degree of unbelief. How much faith does it take for Jesus to answer a cry for help? That's the question on the table. We get into verse 24, which might be one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Don't miss the detail. Cried out. He didn't say it. He didn't wonder it. He didn't even speak it. He cried it out. I think there's something deep in this man's exhausted soul that just immediately emerges. And he says, there's two things that are true. I have a little bit of faith and I have a lot of doubt. 
I believe, there's something I believe, I would not have journeyed to this place to seek you out, Jesus, if I didn't have a smidgen of hope that you could help me. And yet, I'm not sure you can. Your disciples failed. He's no better than he was before. These scribes around are saying, you don't actually have power, that you're an imposter. You might actually be from Satan. If you're from Satan, how are you going to cast out this demon? Are you just going to make it worse? I believe, but I don't believe. I believe. Help my unbelief. But did you notice that even his expression of doubt is cried out as a prayer? Help the parts of me that aren't there yet. Help. And I kind of imagine this man, after he, he had this very you know, weak expression of faith that he might have braced himself for Jesus to come back and say, you don't have enough faith. Maybe Jesus was going to say, what do you mean help you with your unbelief? That's not how it works. Your faith is your job, Jesus might say. My job is to teach and do the miracles. Your job is to believe. Your job's to have faith. What do you mean, help you with your job? Tell you what, Jesus might have said. Why don't you go home? Why don't you work out your faith muscles? And when you have no doubt, when you can come back to me with 100% faith, then we'll talk about your son. That might have been what Jesus would have said. And honestly, none of us in the room would have thought it surprising. We would have said, yeah, I think that's how it works. Verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. The father of the boy might have expected a rebuke for his tiny faith. The only thing that got rebuked was the demon. Jesus had pity on him. Jesus helped him. Even though his faith was small. Tiny, maybe. You might say it was a little bit like a mustard seed. Now, everyone around would have thought initially that Jesus harmed the boy more than he helped him. Because watch what happens next. Verse 26. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. The spirit came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. Pause right there for just a moment. Get the picture here. This dad comes in with this weak faith. He's like, I'm not sure who you are. I'm not sure if you can help. You might even be from Satan, but I'm gonna ask you to help anyway. I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus says something, commands the spirit. The convulsion is the worst one he's ever seen. He falls on the ground. He's dead. By the way, he might have been literally dead or he might have been in a coma and just looked like he was dead, but it's clear that everybody around there, they, they, he was dead. He was dead for all practical purposes at that point in time. It just went from bad to worse. What is Jesus doing? He's setting up a resurrection. 
not just is he going to cast out this demon. He's actually going to bring about newness of life. And I want you to see this. Verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. Now, there's two Greek words in there that raised him up and he got up. There's two verbs that are the same verbs that were used earlier about the little girl that Jesus raised from the dead. Same two verbs that will be used later about Jesus' own resurrection. These are resurrection words that are being used here. There is a newness of life. I think there's actually a resurrection. Now, why does this matter to us so much? Remember the theme of our text? our inability, our insufficiency, top piece of bread, bottom piece of bread. You can't do it without God's resources. Is death not the ultimate expression of where your sufficiency ends? There will come a time for me and there will come a time for you. Our bodies will fail us doesn't matter how smart you are, how much you've studied, how much money you have, how many family members and friends that are surrounding you who love you. At some point in time, your resources will give way. And if there's not a resurrection, if there's not new life, you will cease, you see. Your life will cease. This is the ultimate expression of where our resources end and God's resources begin. So for all of us, when we get to that final place in life, we get it. All of a sudden, it's like, all right, I I didn't think I needed you before, God, but I need you. If I'm going to have anything beyond this, I need you. What Jesus is teaching his disciples is like, guys, that's the posture of what it means to be a human being. You're not an autonomous creature. You're not independent. You don't have unlimited resources. You'll see it in your death, but if you're willing to say, I believe, even if it's a tiny little piece of belief, even if it's a 5%, a 10%, a 20%, if you're willing to say, I believe, because you see, it's not the, it's not the quality of the faith, it's the object of the faith. If you're willing to say that, you can see new life. You can see resurrection. All this is embedded in this text. The man cries out, I believe, even though it's a small amount, and I have a lot of doubt, but I'm going to ask you to help me even with my doubt. And he gets resurrection for his son, and he gets a new life sense of faith for him. Oh, this is Jesus. This is the life giver. This is the Savior. This is our true king. This is our only hope. Now, I want to put the whole sandwich together and we're going to apply it. The beginning of the narrative, the disciples are faced with their own insufficiency. The end of the narrative, Jesus says, the reason you couldn't do it is because you got to ask me for help. You are insufficient on your own. And in the middle, we see one man who understood his insufficiency and came to the right place to ask for help. He does what the disciples were meant to do. He does what you and I are meant to do as human beings. Have mercy on me and help. Help. This is more than I can bear. Help. That is a great prayer. I believe. Help my unbelief.
Now, I want to apply this to two groups of people in the room. Now, here's the so what of the text, if you want to think about it this way. What is one thing in your life that needs this prayer? This I believe, help my unbelief. What's one thing in your life that you could wrap that prayer around? The little bit of faith that you have and maybe a lot of doubt that you also have. Because all of us in the room have come in here with some degree of unbelief. So let me give you a couple categories. First of all, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this book. There's some people in this room that it's like, I, I, I don't know if I actually believe that this is true. Doesn't it seem a little fanciful, honestly, in 2017 that we believe in a God who created all this and we believe in Jesus who did miracles and raised from the grave? I, I'm not real sure. I, I don't think I actually really believe that for sure if I'm honest. I know that's a number of you in the room, and I want to say, it's okay. I'm glad you're here this morning, and you've brought in that piece of your unbelief. And I hope that you'll feel comfortable being here with that piece of your unbelief. And I'll also say, there's some in the room that you would say, you know, I, I used to have a stronger faith in all this stuff, but, but now I'm not so sure. I have a lot more doubt than I used to. Listen. Are you, whichever those categories you fit into, are you willing this morning, are you even able just to say, I believe, help my unbelief? In other words, are you able to say, uh, you know, I, I'm here and I kind of think there may be something bigger than me, something beyond me, but I'm not sure I'd buy into all this. Listen, I believe a little bit. Help my unbelief, God. If you're even there, if you're even listening, I believe a little. Help my unbelief, which is a lot. Are you willing to pray that prayer? That's a great prayer. What a good way for you to interact with God this morning. Not in shame, not in like, oh man, God, you must be so angry at me that I don't believe. He did not rebuke the man for his weak faith. He answered the prayer. Some of y'all are there and you've got to pray this prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. We talk about an one other audience, one other group of people. You know, some of you say, I don't have any trouble believing in, in the God stuff and the Bible and all those kinds of things. I, I, just, I just have the faith. But I'm struggling with this mess that I'm in. I'm struggling in this relationship, this illness, this hardship, this lost dream, this difficult marriage, this circumstance, this rebellious child, this, all these different things that I know many of you in this room are in. Are you able, are you willing this morning to pray this prayer around that circumstance? I believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, God, I'm going to dare to proclaim that you're in this, but it sure doesn't seem like it. I believe. Help my unbelief. Like, What do you believe to be true? Even just a tiny kernel of faith. And then could you take that kernel and declare it? Say, okay, God, I, I believe, but I don't believe all these other things. And you didn't rebuke this man, and I'm trusting you, didn't, you will not rebuke me for my small amount of faith. All right, those are the two audiences. I want to give you an analogy, and then I'm going to pray with you for you, and we're going to sing a song. I came across this analogy this week that I thought was perfect for this text. Imagine that you slip off a cliff and it's certain death at the bottom. And in that terrifying moment as you're falling through the air, you look below you and you see that you're approaching a single tree branch sticking out from the edge of the cliff. And you realize 
If that branch doesn't hold me, I'm dead. And as you're following, all this is going through your mind at a crazy fast speed. You look at the branch and you're like, it's not a strong branch. I don't think it's actually going to hold me. There's no way. I'm moving too fast. I'm too weighty. That branch is not going to hold, but it's your only hope, so you reach out for it anyway. And you grab onto the branch, and a miracle happens. It holds you. You're saved. Now let me ask you this question. At that moment of your salvation, at that moment when the branch proves to be reliable, did it matter that you only had a 10% or 15% likelihood in your head that it was going to hold you? It didn't matter. What mattered was the branch. It's not the quality of your faith, y'all. It's the object of your faith. All it takes is a little mustard seed. All it takes is say, I don't know if it's there, but I'm going to reach out and grab for it. That's faith. And there will be a day when our faith becomes sight and there will be no longer doubt because we see. But until then, we have faith and we doubt. We believe Help my unbelief. That's the Christian life. That's what it means to walk by faith. Now, I'm going to invite you to, to play this out literally in two ways. I, I want you to, to grab onto whatever that thing is for you that's your hard circumstance or your lack of faith, right? What do you need to pray this prayer around? I believe, help my unbelief. We're going to do two things. Number one, I'm going to pray with you and for you. I'm going to pray this prayer around that thing in your life that's too much for you beyond your resources. And then secondly, on Wednesday night, at the night of prayer that Tim told us about earlier, we're going to come back to this. And we're going to talk about what would it look like in the season leading up to Easter for us to follow Jesus to the cross step by step with this I believe, help my unbelief, I believe, help my unbelief, step by step by step until finally we'll be able to see a resurrection. We're going to engage around that on Wednesday night. We'd love for you to come. So for now, I want to pray with you and for you. If you'd bow your heads with me. I'd invite the band to come back up and begin to play. When they're, or after we pray, we're going to sing together. But before we get there, I want to pray with you. I want to pray for you. In fact, I want to guide you. So what I'd invite you to do with your heads bowed is, is I, I literally want you to think of one thing. What, what is that thing that's just, it, it, you don't have enough faith. You don't have enough faith. Uh, may, maybe it's around your kids. Um, you don't actually have enough faith that, that what's going to happen in their lives that you know should happen, needs to happen, you want to happen, will actually happen. Maybe it's around your marriage. It's, it, it just is a little too far gone. I, I don't know that we're ever going to be back to a place where we're really for each other. I don't know how he or she actually really feels about me, although we're gutting it out. Maybe it is about your health. Uh, you have fear for the future. There's an unknown. There's a circumstance in your own health. Maybe it's about someone else that you care deeply about. They're struggling in some way with their health or an emotional or spiritual challenge in their lives. Maybe it's about a dream that you had that's now been lost. It's been broken. It's gone. It's been shattered. You don't really know what you have to hope in or, or, or be excited about as you move forward. Um, Maybe it's some other circumstance in your life. It could be a loss that you're just still grieving over and it's deep and it's hard. And sometimes you don't have enough faith to see to the other side. Maybe for you, it is like we talked about, just a lack of faith in general. 
It's like you kind of wish you believed it. You don't really believe it. Maybe there's someone in your life that is there. You just wish that God would give them the faith to believe. Father, we can all identify with one or more of these things. And Father, you've preserved this story, this, this true incident in the life of your son Jesus where there's this man that came with this pretty remarkable prayer where he was so honest. And he simply declared the smallness of his faith and then he asked for help with the rest. And so God, we want to pray that prayer. And we want to pray it in trust that, that even though it may not be as, as strong a faith as we wish we had, that you will not rebuke the smallness of our faith. But even a small faith is honoring to you. So whatever piece of faith, of trust, of belief that men and women in this room have around that one circumstance that they're holding in their minds right now, God, I pray that you would be honored by that faith, even if it's small, that you would help them, that you would engage with them and help them to know that you've given them that ability to believe just even that tiny little piece, that mustard seed. So Father, right now we pray this prayer, this combination of declaration and a cry for help. This I believe, help my unbelief. And so congregation, invite you right now to talk to God for just about 30 seconds, 60 seconds around this area of your life where your faith's not big enough. Declare your smallness of faith and ask God for help with the rest. And let's do that now. Father, at the core of our souls and all of these things we've been praying about just now, there is a faith struggle. The question, do you care? Do you hear? Are you real? Do you see? Are you in control? Do I matter to you? And yet, Father, we can declare this small little piece and that is we're talking to you. We, something in us, for all that I've been praying in the last two minutes, there's something in them that says, you know, I don't know what I believe, but I believe enough to actually talk. You know, I believe enough to actually engage in some way, not even knowing for sure if he's listening or hearing me or even there. And so, Father, would you be honored by that small amount of faith? And would you be honored, Father, in another way, by the help prayer, the, the prayer for help that says, there's something that's beyond me and I need your help. That's an honoring prayer to you, Father. And I know that you answer that prayer. So in confidence, I call upon you by the word, by the truth in your word, would you respond so graciously as you do all throughout your scripture to that prayer, that you would take pity on us and that you would help us, even help us in our lack of faith. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand together as we sing this song of declaration?